There are a number of constants in my life presently, but throughout the entirety of my 31 years thus far in this life, one constant has always been there. Video games. While I indeed am a lover of other things, such as professional wrestling, anime, music, sports, and much more, video games have always been an integral part of my life. I truly believe that without the many games I have played over the years, that I would not be the person I am today, and perhaps maybe not even alive to this day. Through at least over 20 full years of playing games, few are games that I call great, and even fewer I call legendary. There are many I call my favorites, but only one can be THE favorite. That game is Final Fantasy X. There are so many games that I've played throughout my entire life. Hell, there's a ton of games within the Final Fantasy series alone. So what makes Final Fantasy X my favorite game of all time? Well, let's take a look. Hello everyone, I'm Adam aka CS Radical, and welcome to the Radical Recall. This podcast is going to be different from all the other shows that you can listen to me on. While shows like the anime-based Church of Weeb, the professional wrestling-themed Radical Wrestling Podcast, or especially the extremely random VCR podcast that I run with my friends Vish and Chris, the Radical Recall is a podcast designed as a polar opposite to all my other shows. It is scripted, so there will be no asides, no spur-of-the-moment thoughts, and especially no stammering on my words or forgetting things, which is a real shame because I admittedly like the tone that's set in these shows, mistakes included. But with this show, I wanted to give myself an outlet that will really put my thoughts out there in a much more clear and concise manner. Every thought, every word, has been typed out, rather than spat out as fast as my brain can work. This will allow me to take the time to ensure that I don't miss anything important, as well as give me more time to look over a particular section of that topic at hand, to make sure that I put my thoughts down in the best way possible. So I hope you enjoy this first edition of The Recall. This show will more often than not be going back in time to look at things that I've enjoyed over the years. But who knows, maybe the right hot button topic comes along and I can do a show here on it. The Recall also won't be limited to video games. In fact, the next one I'm planning on doing, if I can get it done in time, will be an episode on the TV space epic The Expanse, which will be heading into its fourth season on December 13th so stay tuned for more. But I think I've rambled on long enough here, so let's get talking about my favorite game of all time, Final Fantasy X. And just a heads up, I'm talking about everything to do with this game, so it should go without saying, but this is going to be chock full of massive spoilers. So, you have been warned. Listen to my story. This may be our last chance. The first time I ever played a Final Fantasy game was the Super Nintendo classic Final Fantasy IV, or Final Fantasy II as it was known at the time here in the West. Because Squaresoft, which for those who don't know, is what Square Enix used to be known before they merged with Enix, the makers of Dragon Quest, Star Ocean, and other popular games before merging on April 1st of 2003. Hell of a merge on April Fools. But I played both Final Fantasy 4 and 6 
during my time with the Super Nintendo before moving on to the Nintendo 64. It would be a long time before I would play a Final Fantasy game again, as I never owned a PlayStation. So it wasn't until my family finally upgraded to a PlayStation 2 that I had the chance to get back into the majority of Squaresoft's catalog. Now at the time, I didn't know that the PlayStation 2 was backwards compatible. So when I went down to my local Rogers Video, a movie and game rental store here in Canada, I gravitated to the PS2 section and there I saw Final Fantasy X. Now I had really fond memories of both 4 and 6. In fact, while yes, Final Fantasy X is my favorite game of all time, I actually say that Final Fantasy VI is the best game of all time. X is my favorite, but VI to me is the most well put together game I will ever play. You're probably confused, shouldn't my favorite game of all time also be the best one? Well to me when I say FF10 is my favorite game of all time, it isn't just about the quality of the game. It has more to do with all of the positive memories that came with it. When I got a PlayStation 2, it was right around the time my family moved away from the small village town we lived in my entire run through elementary school leading up to grade 8. Moving to a new town, I was free from all the bullies that had tormented me throughout kindergarten to grade 7. I finally had the chance to start anew. As Lulu even says in Final Fantasy X, No matter how dark the night, morning always comes, our journey begins anew. And that's exactly how I felt. But sure, games like Final Fantasy VI and IV, both, they were great. But they also came at a time where they served more as therapy than entertainment for me. Ten had the advantage of being the first game in the series I played with a mind clear from fear, from depression, and sadness. And when that game is as fun, lighthearted, and cheerful as it is at times, it was certainly a game that brought the best out of me. Sure, there's some dark and sad stuff in there too, but when I look back at the time that I spent with Final Fantasy X, I remember far more of the fun stuff than, say, a game like Final Fantasy VI, where the first thing I remember is watching people fall to their deaths after Kefka splits the world apart. Literally. It's funny to talk about how lighthearted Final Fantasy X is, when the first sound you hear is the ringing of a very sad and somber piano piece. To this day, I will never understand why the designers let off with two Xanarkin, it just seems so out of place to go from that song to the peppy prelude that leads you into our first moments with main character Titus. And another bit of criticism, the first Final Fantasy game with voice acting and they still let you customize the main character's name? So throughout the entire game, you're never addressed by name, hell, because of that, it took until Kingdom Hearts was released that I actually found out the pronunciation was Titus and not Titus, a mistake I unknowingly made for years. But in the grand scheme of things, they're such small complaints, and by the time the game really got moving, I didn't pay any mind to them. As soon as that opening cinematic starts and the badass Otherworld song plays, I was hooked. As ridiculous as that cutscene was, and believe me, we'll get into Blitzball later in the show, I couldn't help but be mesmerized by how crazy realistic that cutscene looked at the time, especially in the eyes of a 14-year-old boy. A side note, for the longest time, I thought the lyric was Don't. You. Give. Up. Orin. 
because right when the line give up on it is sung, Oren appears in that cutscene. I mean, why not put his name in the lyrics of a song specifically written for this game? Made sense to me. We called it Sin. Sin? Seeing Sin for the first time and fighting the Sin spawn introduced me to the biggest change that this game would bring to the Final Fantasy series. Normally, these games had the ATB, or Active Time Battle System. Everything ran on a timer, so if you took too long deciding your next course of action, enemies would attack. But in Final Fantasy X, we got the conditional turn-based battle, or CTB. Turns could take as long as you needed, so if you wanted to spend several minutes planning your next move, you could. Sure, it takes away a bit of the intensity, but it also allowed players like me to plan a little more than normal, as generally speaking, I used to just spam fight, and the most powerful abilities are magic spells, unless I needed to use items the odd time. As much as I love Spira, I was a little sad that we didn't spend more time in Tidus's home of Xanarkand. The architecture was just so damn gorgeous. I would have loved for the game to draw a little more out of the panic from Sin's attack, but instead you fight a few Sin spawn, and they get sucked up into Sin itself, which at the time really freaked me out, because it looked like they were getting eaten alive. But Titus and Orin get sucked up and transported to another world. Kuno. The reason this game carries so many positive memories for me has to do with a single character. Riku, to this very day, is still one of my favorite female characters in gaming, and yes, very high on the waifu list. The first time I saw her, I probably thought the same thing a lot of you did. Is she wearing nothing but a belt as a thong? Even with the coloring of her bodysuit, a horny teenager cannot help but think it's close enough to a shade of skin that it had to be just that. But enough about the over-sexualized bodysuit, let's just talk about Riku. In the little time we spend with her here, I'm already beyond interested in her. That soft voice, the smaller frame, her kind and caring heart. She sold me on her from the very beginning. Who knew that 10 hours or so later, I'd have even more reasons to like her. Not to mention, the Albed language was something I gravitated towards immediately as well. It was very clever of the design team to have a language that was just a mix of the letters. For example, S was now replaced with C, thus creating a language that was so different and yet could be slowly brought back to regular English by collecting all the Albed primers, which made the subtitles slowly convert the language back to proper English, so over the course of the game, you'd understand more and more of what was being said, especially in the second time you go through the game when the New Game Plus carries over all the primers you collected in the first run. And the dialect just sounded so... right. I can still remember how to pronounce a few things. As the audio clip showed, Kuno is sorry, Kridib is shut up, and Shopakuchacho stands for maybe someday, which is a common phrase used when the fanfiction crew gets moving on a Titus Riku pairing. Again, much like the early moments in Xanarkin, this bit of the game was just too short. I was hoping to spend just a little more time with Riku, and his sin attacked once more and sent me flying off that Albed ship. I couldn't help but want more. 
Sure, they got enough to move things forward. We established that Titus was definitely not in a world with the same level of tech as the world that he came from. We heard straight from Riku's mouth that Xanarkin has been in ruins for over a millennium, telling us that we aren't in another world, but rather the future, after Sin's destructive rampage of the entire world. But still, I wanted Riku to stay in my party, and yet she left so soon. Awakening once more at Besaid Island, somehow not dead because of those blitzball lungs, even though it looked like his head was underwater the whole time, we get introduced to our next party member, Waka, as well as Blitzball still being a thing in this world. It's even more curious because the ball retains its exact shape and design after over 1,000 years, which is incredible and admittedly quite unrealistic when you think about it. But with nothing else to do, Titus naturally joins Waka and his team the Besaid Aurochs, who are the equivalent of any sports team you can think of that has sucked for more than a decade. I'll let you fill in the blank. The Aurochs haven't won a game in 23 years, which is just insane. Even the worst teams in every sport luck into at least one win. But 23 years? Man, even the Toronto Maple Leafs can pull a win once in a while. Naturally, Titus doesn't stay still for long. Being introduced to the Temple of the Faith in Besaid, he hears about a new summoner who hasn't returned from her trial since entering the day before. So of course he barges in, despite being told not to, because, you know, why follow rules in a world where you know nothing about yet? And this is where we're introduced to the bulk of our team, in Kamari, Lulu, and of course, Yuna, who has yet to discover her love of hot pants. She had just passed her trial and unlocked the ability to summon Valifor, the first of many Aeons, or summons in the game. I relied so heavily on Aeons in my first attempt to play through the game. In fact, here's a crazy story. The first time I played this game, it was a 7-day rental, so naturally I was trying to breeze through this as fast as I could. In doing so, I didn't really pay attention to everything, including the most important thing of all, the sphere grid. I thought the sphere level on the party screen was my level. Yep. I didn't pay attention to the fact I wasn't learning new spells and abilities, and my power wasn't really increasing. I just thought that's how hard the game was. So yeah, you're hearing that correctly. I played through the game without leveling up. You want to know how far I got until I finally hit a wall? The Calmlands Golem boss. Yeah, I'm not kidding. The Calmlands. My idiocy aside, I was curious about Yuna while the other party members were kind of pushed to the background. Granted, 14-year-old boy here, Yuna had some side bra going on, and it wasn't really into older big-breasted women like Lulu. So again, you know, the horny teenager had to go in one direction. By the way, Yuna in the game is 17, Riku is 15, and Lulu, 22. Yeah, real old. Yuna, though, had that shyness that made me quite curious while everyone else hadn't really gotten my attention just yet. She kept me intrigued in the early part of the game before the story really took hold, as the first real big event wasn't far away. I was in a foreign world. I wasn't going home. This was my new reality, and I was stuck in it for good. The first place you get to after Besaid is Kiliga Island, 
or at least what's left of it. This is the truly horrifying scene of the game. Kafka in Final Fantasy VI destroying the world halfway into the game. But this? First few hours. Sin absolutely massacres the island, and you see several people being sucked into the air and to their deaths. You are also led to believe that there are at least three dead children, one of them a baby. Yeah, this game does have its dark moments. During the travel, though, Yuna does get closer to Titus after seeing him do the Jack Shot, a move by his old man and a name that she tells him is familiar to her, as Jekt apparently was one of her father's guardians, thus making this mystery even more confusing. Not even that his father was her father's guardian, but that they defeated Sin, and it was still running rampant, presumably not even 20 years later. But at the very least, someone now believes Titus's crazy story, while we're too busy trying to make heads or tails of everything else. Upon reaching Kilika, we immediately get to the infamous sending cutscene. It shows the true emotional power that the game can wield when it's on, as Yuna gracefully dances as she sends all of the dead to the afterlife while on a cascade of water with fireflies, or in this case pyreflies, flying into the skies above. But we don't have too much time to dwell on sadness and sorrow. In our first major dungeon of the game, in Kilika's Temple, we get introduced to Donna, another summoner, and the first girl we meet along the way who has a real emphasis on making sure that you get to see some underwear. And she won't be the last. Yuna acquires Ifrit here, showing us that we'll be getting her summons through the various temples, and that these temples would also be the puzzles of the game, some which will be fine, and some which most certainly won't, Makalania Temple. Stupid ice puzzle. Our next location takes us to Luka, where the big Blitzball tournament takes place. We hear that Orin may be here, as well as getting introductions to the Maesters, who are essentially like popes in this world. More than one, as if we needed more than one. There's Micah, but let's be honest, he doesn't really matter. The only one that truly matters is Seymour, who eventually becomes the game's you're gonna fight me multiple times throughout this whole damn thing boss. And boy oh boy was I happy to kick his face in several times. But the most important piece comes with the big blitzball game towards the end. Sure, the first match takes place without you as you're busy attending to a kidnapped Yuna via the outbed, which of course did get my motor running thinking Riku might be among them. But sadly, she isn't. A funny note though, the Oroks actually win this game without you, breaking their 23-year losing streak. So I guess you weren't needed after all. So at this point, I just want to take a moment to gush about Blitzball. Seems like the perfect time to do so. I'm not ashamed to say I probably spent 20 or so hours playing Blitzball the first time I made a full run through this game. To this day, I still wish Square had made a separate Blitzball game, just so I could go nuts playing that. I'm also still a little bitter because they turned it into a simulator in the sequel, Final Fantasy X-2. But let's keep the conversation to the original. The first game against the Luka Goers was really hard, to the point I was almost convinced that it was a must-lose game, kind of like how some boss battles just end up being things you have to lose. But for whatever reason, I refused to let it be that way. 
so four tries would take place, and I finally managed to squeak out a win. Barely. Later down the road, though, Blitzball was a game that I brutally abused once I knew how to work it. Here's what I would do. I recruited Rop, who had a ridiculous passing stat. I'd throw him in the corner of the opposing zone and let all their defenders go at him. I'd pass the ball to Titus, who would be wide open and sphere shot for a goal every single time. If for whatever reason, Titus actually got caught, I'd just check shot instead. Either way, I'd win games 9-0 constantly. I was not the nicest guy when playing that minigame. But I loved every second of it, and like I said, I wish this had been made into its own game. Even if the game makes no scientific sense. Underwater handball soccer hybrid without oxygen tanks? Sure, makes sense to me. But back to the journey, we start going on the Mien High Road, where the first real grindfest started for me. Now with Orin fully in my party, I started running my Tidus Yuna Orin trio and refused to use chocobos, despite my need to hear that classic song. Along the way, we meet Rin and Rin's travel agency, and then soon the Chocobo Knights, specifically Lucille, another pantsless girl in this game. I told you it was a thing. As we hit the Mushroom Rock Road, we get to another infamous moment in the game. Operation Meehan, where at one point you can decide the fate of a side character, or at least two of them. Luzu and Gata, characters that have been following you since Besaid Island, one of them will live and one of them will die during this mission. The first time I ever did this, I lost Luzu. Because I didn't really know I could do anything. I just assumed he was supposed to die. But that changes when I found out that you can just keep pushing Gata to be the one who dies. Just say, hey, you want to fight in this battle? You should go to the front lines. And he goes, you know what? That doesn't sound like a really terrible and dumb idea. Sure enough, he dies. Or as Luzu says, pushed his luck. But they're not the only ones that are dealing with this. There are several, in fact hundreds of lives, that seemingly lose their lives in this battle with Sin. There are the Crusaders, who belong to the Evan religion, along with several Albed, who are the only people who used the banned machines, or Machina. A religion banning technology, huh? Sounds like that's been a thing somewhere. But like I said, the plan fails, and Sin kills a boatload of people again. This is where we see the game, though, start to show its core messaging. Yevon, the religious presence in this game, takes zero blame for the mission failure, calling all of the crusaders who died in this battle heathens no longer part of the faith because they worked with people who use Machina. As the game progresses, it becomes very prevalent that the story is showing how corrupt religion is, taking shots at religion in our own world. Basically, by the time this game is over, you discover that not only the faith is corrupt, but in fact their teachings and even their gods have been lying the whole time about what is truly going on with Sin, the summoners, and their pilgrimage, everything. But more on that later. For now, Titus is resigned to the suffering that Sin is creating, that his father is creating. Being told by Orin, back in Luca that Sin was defeated by Jekt and Braska, Yuna's father. And now Jekt has become Sin. Why? Again, more on the lies of the pilgrimage later. But thankfully, 
this moment is overshadowed pretty quickly after by a massive return. At least for 14-year-old me. En route to Jose Island on a shoe puff, which I can only describe as a water elephant that is used as a riverboat, the crew run into this massive piece of machina, which they fight underwater. Again, the weird thing about the CTB system, you can take as long as you want with the turns, and that means you can fight underwater for as long as you want. But they never need to go for extra air. Logic, I guess. Upon defeating this machina, Tatis finds a familiar bodysuit-wearing person lying on the beach. Yep, it's exactly who I thought it was. Shooting up to her feet, Riku proceeds to strip off said bodysuit, giving us some nice green shorts wearing booty shots for us, before taking off her... helmet? And showing us that perfect short hair she has. And this is where my eyes left Yuna for the rest of the game. Speaking of eyes, we see Riku's eyes for the first time which has this weird swirl in her pupils. So she's got gorgeously unique eyes too. But she really didn't need to sell me anymore. I already was in. She finally joins the party, this time for good. But there's a bit of a snag. So Waka is, let's be honest, quite racist when it comes to the Albed. So the truth of Riku's origins are at least kept quiet for the time being. But truth be told, I'd have dumped him in a heartbeat if he tried to kick her out of my party. But since my eyes were no longer on Yuna, works out perfectly that douchebag Seymour has his eyes on her. Heading to Guadalcanal, his homeland, he invites the crew to his mansion, but mostly just to woo Yuna, showing her all these fancy visions and stuff before proposing to her, saying he'll be her Zeon, the husband and guardian of the first summoner to ever defeat Sin. Unileska. Oddly enough, that name being similar doesn't actually end up meaning anything, seems Braska just like Yuna rather than Leska for his daughter's name. Yuna doesn't respond to this proposal, but you get the feeling that it's going to happen, whether she wants it to or not. And just when you didn't hate Seymour enough already, before leaving Guadalcanal, you find out his father Jiskel is an unsent which is basically a ghost who remains after dying an unclean death. You know he killed his own father, but it's not time for the game to reveal that yet. And to make things even stranger, during Yuna's sending of him, Oren falls to his knees. First time around, I thought nothing of this. And in retrospect, I have no idea why. Whoa! Whoa, that was a close one. <laughs> Stop kidding around. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> mm, what's wrong? <laughs> You're giving me the creeps. <laughs> but again, the show goes back to being funny again. Hitting the Thunder Plains, literally a plains where lightning is always showering down, somehow, we find that Riku isn't exactly the best fan of it. Turns out when she was little, her brother tried to save her from a monster and use a thunder spell to do it. 
but missed the monster and hit her instead. But it was still adorable, watching her crawl in that weird spider-shaped manner, clinging to Titus's leg, praying that they just take a break, and Oren just being like, <sighs> It was great. Still one of my favorite moments. At this point, while staying at Rin's travel agency, so Riku can have a bit of a break from the cascade of endless lightning, well, something is really up with Yuna. A sphere, or in this world, a video recording. Yeah, that's right, a video recording in a world with Machina being banned. Makes sense. You know, just suspend your disbelief here. But a sphere dropped from Seymour's father when she sent him to the afterlife, and she continues to study this recording. She eventually announces, while still at the agency, that she intends to accept Seymour's proposal. Oren suggests privately to Titus that Yuna is planning something, but isn't quite sure what that is. We then hit the road to Makalania Temple, where after defeating a real pain of a Makina boss that Riku's brother, literally named Brother, is running. Through that, the racist hears that Riku is all bad, and Waka freaks out, only to have it basically fall on deaf ears. The party handles it well, giving him zero breathing room here, so he just walks away from everybody while you get the chance to ride on a Makina with whoever in your party you have the most affection points with. This was a pain for me, because naturally I wanted it to be with Riku. But that's really hard to do when she has far less time in your party than everyone else. First time I ever did this, it was with Lulu. Because of course it was, she had the most playing time. Second time around, New Game Plus, you bet your ass I grinded hard to make sure Riku was going to be the one on that Machina. You can get some useful information from both women, though, if you get them. Lulu reveals Waka's hatred towards the Elbad stems from his brother Chapu dying in battle while wielding a Machina weapon, thus Waka believing he died because he was considered a heathen by God. Riku reveals that she is Yuna's cousin, which makes Yuna half Elbad. Ooh boy, Waka's not gonna like that one. Cue the Makalania Temple and that ice puzzle that took me way too long to figure out the first time. Hate that damn puzzle. So when completing that and being told I have to kill Seymour because he turns on us after Yuna accuses him of killing his father, I mean, I was already mad as it is, so I was more than happy to. But of course, religious fanatics are blind, and a man close to Seymour prevents Yuna from sending him after we kill him, and destroys the recording that proves Seymour killed his father. Because, you know, religious folk have issues with facts and evidence. Again, game isn't taking shots of religion or anything. During their escape from Guado forces, they fall through an ice fissure, and somehow end up on Sin, who's just casually chilling under the frozen lake under the temple. Because, you know, Gotta move the plot along. Somehow, they all end up on Bicanel Island, the home of the Albed, a desert land. In repelling a Guado attack on the home of the Albed, Titus learns a crucial fact he was never told about Yuna's pilgrimage. Riku tells him that when the summoner defeats Sin by summoning the final Aeon, they die in the process. Now this part is never properly explained does the energy required to summon the final Aeon kill the summoner? Or does that Aeon kill the summoner because its power is impossible to control? Does it even kill Sin? All these questions aren't really answered ever, but hey, who said Japanese RPGs ever have to make complete sense the entire time? 
Blah, blah, blah. You get an airship. Sid's there. Yay! Yuna gets captured to go marry Seymour and Bevel and... Wait, what? He's alive? Yeah, apparently Unsent Seymour is just walking around no problem and still wants a bride to consummate the marriage with. Thankfully, the crew do their best Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson impressions and crash the wedding, and Yuna tries once more to send Seymour to the afterlife, but fails once again. The cutscene here is really badass, as all the party members are grinding down ropes or cables, whatever you want to call them here, to get there. Not to mention the scene where Yuna fakes killing herself by falling off the ledge to the abyss below, only to summon Valifor and fly away. That was cool, man. I really still remember this particular scene fondly. It was so cool. But in the end, they don't escape, and are sent to the prison of Via Perifico. But not before learning about the massive amount of lies that Yevon chose. They carry tons of Machina in their biggest temple, betraying their own teachings, and we discover that Maester Micah is an unsent as well. So this religion doesn't care about their own rules, and can't even go away in death. Like I said, this game doesn't really portray religion in the kindest of lights. Through this dungeon, we learn that indeed the pilgrimage is a useless effort, as sin always comes back. We also learn Seymour's true plans after killing Maester Keenock, the least important of the four maesters. I mean, let's be honest, I didn't even mention two of the four, so yeah, not that important. Seymour intends to become Sin, and destroy all life, thus ending the endless cycle that Sin has become. So classic villain trope, I want to end all suffering by ending all life. We beat him a second time, but don't send him for some reason. Now at this point, I intended to put the most infamous scene in the game, but since it's basically just music, and I don't need one big fat copyright strike here, we'll just talk about it, and imagine Suteki Dane playing in the background, okay? So Yuna is clearly shaken up at this point. Everything she believed, everything she thought, has been an absolute lie. Yevon is not what it says it is. Every person at the top there now wants her dead, and they betrayed everything they've taught her and the rest of Spira. The only truth left for her is that she will die if she continues the pilgrimage and she still intends to do so, even though she knows it won't bring peace forever, but only for a short while. But she's a broken mess at this point, and decides to try and relieve the stress by walking into a lake fully clothed? Titus tries his best to comfort her, fully clothed as well. Even at 14, I knew right away the scene was going to be drawn in a totally different light. I mean, come on. Of course I already knew about hentai and doujinshi. The internet existed. He tries to get her to quit the pilgrimage, or, you know, quite simply use her head, but she still refuses, saying that even if she'll die and the peace is short, it's still peace and worth it to her. But she cries. So Titus comes up with the perfect plan to soothe her pain. Makeout session! Or at least a really terrible CG kiss anyways. Hasn't really aged well. So, as I'm typing this out, this whole script at this point, I'm coming to the realization that other than one specific clip towards the end, I honestly can't think of another audio clip to insert here. From this point in the game onward, it's all pure information, not a lot of super memorable moments. The fun also starts to end here, and it's getting really serious. So you're not crazy in that there aren't many more audio clips in between me speaking here, it's just 
pretty heavy from here on out. So here's all the complicated information we get, all the way from Mount Gagazet to pretty much the final fights with Sin. After defeating Seymour a third time, and escaping a unit ascending again, we find out what's really going on with Titus, Sin, basically everything. Now none of this is really in order how the game reveals it from here on out, I'm just going to explain this whole thing as best I can. So during the time of Titus' Xanarkin, there was a war going on between Xanarkin and Bavel. Xanarkin was a summoner nation, while Bavel relied on Machina. This war is more explained in Final Fantasy X too, but the gist is that Xanarkin was losing and was doomed to fall. Enter Yu Yevin, a summoner with a vision to save the nation. He convinces the remaining living people of Xanarkin to become Faith, these crystallized people we see towards the end of the game. They act as conduits for a massive summoning that includes the dream version of Xanarkin that we see with Titus. So actually, Titus, Jekt, and all the people we've seen in that Xanarkin don't even truly exist. They're just dreams put into this fake Xanarkin by the Faith. The only reason those two exist is because Sin touched them and allowed them to be real, so long as Sin exists, mind you. At this point in the game, we've reached that original cutscene where Tuzanarkin is playing and Titus tells you that this is his story. So Sin was created by Yu Yevin as the ultimate Aeon that would keep this dream Xanarkin from being found, thus preserving Xanarkin in some way, even in defeat from Bavel. However, Sin had one more objective to ensure no civilization ever reaches the level of technology that the Machina War took place in, thus explaining why Machina was banned in the Evan teachings. So a bit of a shot at how our reliance on technology only creates more weapons of war. However, this creation couldn't be controlled by Yu Yevin, so Sin eventually just attacked everything, including the real Xanarkin, thus bringing Spira to where it stands today. Yevon's daughter, Unileska, yes, that Unileska, would devise the first plan to defeating Sin, being the first to summon the final Aeon and killing Sin, as well as herself in the process. But she became an unsent, and decided to act as the creator of the final Aeon. As we discover, Yuna can't actually summon the final Aeon herself, Unileska is the one who can. Her defeat of Sin did create a time of peace for the world, but Sin would return and destroy all the Machina using civilizations again, thus creating the teachings that put Machina on the ban list. From here on, you had all the various pilgrimages, having summoner after summoner defeat Sin, die, and become a high summoner, bringing a time of peace before a new Sin returns. The Evan teachings were devised to give Spira hope, but knew that Sin would never truly be defeated. This current edition of Sin, being Titus's father Jekt, uses the last bit of awareness he has while as Sin to go to the Dream Xanarkin and bring Titus into the real world Spira. Jekt had accidentally been touched by Sin when he went out to sea, training to make a return to Blitzball after going through a slump. Through his journey guarding Braska, Yuna's father, he becomes the final Aeon, and thus decides to bring Titus in, hoping he can be the one 
to end the cycle. When reaching Xanarkand, the crew meet Unaleska to make the final summoning, only for Yuna to refuse, as she doesn't want to sacrifice any of her friends to become the final Aeon and soon Sin. Unaleska tries to kill them to keep the tradition alive and fails, finally fading away to the afterlife after over a millennium of being an unsent. We also learn at this time that Orin has been an unsent all along, Unaleska killing him after he lashed out at her when Braska and Jet were lost during the final summoning. Luring Sin for a final showdown, they enter Sin's insides and fight their way through, because of course a monster's innards has a perfectly designed dungeon filled with monsters and treasure chests. Inside, they fight Seymour one more time. Don't ask me how he got there, but they defeat him, and Yuna finally sends him. I was still holding out for one final battle with him. Part of me even genuinely thought he would turn to the final boss. Instead, Yu Yevon is the final boss. Don't really know what he looks like, it's just this glowing thing. Because, you know, Final Fantasy and their final bosses are fantastic all the time. After defeating Jekt in his final Aeon form and burying the hatchet with his son and disappearing forever, Yevon appears and starts possessing all of Yuna's Aeons, one by one, as his only instinct left is to possess any Aeon he comes into contact with. Once all the Aeons have been killed, Yevon is left alone and is defeated by the crew. And this is where we reach our end. Sin and Yevon are gone, which means the Faith have been released to the afterlife, and Dream Xanarkand is no more. Orin requests Yuna send him, and does. And Titus is on the verge of disappearing. Yuna refuses to let him go, and the most heartbreaking moment in the game takes place, when she runs to hug him, and goes right through him, falling to the ground. He hugs her as best he can before leaping off the ship, disappearing forever. Unless you unlock the special ending in Final Fantasy X too. But the eternal calm has come, and the game is over. Speaking of Final Fantasy X too, we got time, why don't we sum it all up? Basically, Yuna and Riku go through massive costume changes. Yuna in hot pants, Riku in a bikini. They find this broody white-haired girl named Pain, what a name, and they go on a Charlie's Angels-style adventure that has them looking for a man named Shuyin that they see in a recording that looks a lot like Titus. Through all this, they find out about a weapon underneath Bavel called Vegnagun that was going to end the Machina War 1000 years ago, but was never used. Shuyin is a man who died during the Machina War trying to prevent his lover Len from entering the war as a summoner. Len also just happens to look like Yuna a little bit. He tried to sneak into Bavel and use Vagnagun, but somehow Len followed him and stopped him, eventually being caught, and both were shot and killed. But because Len didn't tell him how much she loved him, he becomes hateful, and though not an unsent for some reason, he exists in the world trying to possess people, so he can use Vagnagun this time to destroy Spira for not learning from the lessons of the Machina War. He's defeated, and then things get weird. So if you complete the game with more than 75% completion, the Faith apparently have found Titus's Pyreflies, and send him back to the real world 
if Yuna wishes so. Of course she'd say yeah. Here's the confusing part. We're led to believe that Titus isn't a real person. He's just a dream character created by the Faith, who devised the image of the Dream's Anarchan world that was created by Yu Yevon all along with Sin. So how is Titus, presumably to not even be a real person over 1,000 years ago, able to be found by his pyreflies that shouldn't even exist? Needless to say, I think this ending was merely created to have the series end on a truly happy note, having Titus reunited with Yuna. At the time when I played it, it was a really happy ending. But in retrospect, eh, it's a little confusing. But there you have it. That's Final Fantasy X, at least in story form. There's so many things I can still talk about beyond the story, but since the show is running quite long as it is, allow me to just rattle off a bunch of things in succession here. The music in this game is incredible. To this day, it's the only video game soundtrack I've ever purchased on its own. Not as a special bonus in a game package, no. I bought this CD at the only nerd culture store my small town ever had, called The Outer Reaches. We had game stores, trading card stores, board game stores, but never truly a store that had everything, especially anime and manga, all in one place. Randomly one day I walked in to just to browse around the store because it's near my house and on the way home from high school. And the store had one new copy of the soundtrack sitting there on the shelf. And it was more expensive than a regular CD. But I bit that bullet and bought it, because I had never owned a video game soundtrack before. At the time, soundtracks weren't a given with games. There weren't the crazy number of special editions we see today. So you bet your ass I wanted that copy. There's so many songs I can name here. As I typed this entire script out, I was listening to the entire soundtrack on Spotify, since Square finally understands the internet and puts all their soundtracks there. As I'm typing this specific sentence, ironically enough, the ending theme is playing, and I truly forgot until this very moment how beautiful this song is. The oboe parts specifically really do a number on my heart. But aside from that, and other songs I mentioned earlier like Two Xanarkin and Otherworld, these themes that really stick out to me are the following. Besaid is a truly wonderfully soothing song. Spira Unplugged just makes me want to break out a guitar and play it every time I hear it. Luca is a really chill tune. Both the Splendid Performance and Blitz Off are great tracks that immediately bring out all the great memories I had playing Blitzball. Oren's theme and Riku's theme stand out as the better character themes, Oren's being super cool, and Riku's being just so damn happy. Lastly, Seymour's theme is quite possibly the best single-use boss battle theme in any game I've ever played. Like I said, this soundtrack is absolutely incredible, my personal favorite in the series, and second all-time, behind Chrono Cross, which just isn't fair considering all the great guitar music Yasunori Mitsuda created for that game. Over time, the characters in this game have really grown on me. I really didn't like Lulu at all when we first played through, and over the years, I've really liked her over time. She's still no Riku, but she's not the old woman that 14-year-old me hated for the first time. Kamari's always been the stoic, yet funny at random moments character, and Waka was always the cheerful one. Well, at least until the racism came out. 
I've already gone through Orin and Riku. The one real weird one left is Yuna. I really, really don't like Yuna. At least not until she loosens up by the time they get to Unaleska. Granted, I know exactly why, and it's kind of not fair to her. Because of my own personal history with relationships, my view of religious following girls is not that great. So when I saw how devoted, and quite honestly blind Yuna was to the teachings of Yevon, I couldn't help but dislike her a little. So it's why when I say I like Yuna, I always make sure to refer her as 10-2 Yuna. Similarly, when I refer to which Riku I like, I refer to 10 Riku. This honestly has nothing to do, though, with anything she's like in 10-2. I just hate the outfit she wears, and especially her hair in that game. It's just a little too much. I loved her in the simplicity that was her short hair, pink top, green shorts. That's it. Other smaller things I remember range from the pain in the ass fight with Yojimbo, but that was worth it. He was a cool Aeon. Speaking of cool Aeons, imagine my shock when going on GameFAQs after starting my second run that you could actually get Anima, the Aeon Seymour summons at one point, as your own summon. Yeah, I mean, Anima was creepy, but yet so damn cool. I remember some of the cool weapons, specifically Titus with the Brotherhood, the sword Waka gives to him that apparently his brother Chapu used. I love the look of that sword. Lastly, the most fun I ever had with this game, when replaying it, was screwing with the sphere grip. You know, when I actually learned how to use it. There is nothing more enjoyable than having Lulu fighting with a Moogle doll, after putting her through Orin's grid with a teleport sphere, and having that tiny doll deal 9999 damage to bosses. That really hurt, you know. You big meanie. <sighs> I have finished this game six separate times. All of them were not quick clears. All six times were over 80 plus hours, doing all the quests and collections I could. The last time I beat this game was around four years ago, when I got the remaster copy for PlayStation Vita, which I played on my PlayStation TV, because I don't really like handheld gaming that much. And every single time I finish it, I have quite the smile on my face. It's my ultimate nostalgia. You know, after typing this all out, and now reading it into this microphone for the show, I realize how many things I've forgotten over the years, while refreshing the entire story to me. I've also proven to myself why I consider this game my favorite, but not the best of all time. When I really think about it, man this game's second half is a confusing mess of a story. Dreams, faith, final summons, sin being reborn, all these things are not story elements a first-timer is going to get. Hell, even today having a much better understanding of it all, it's still a little rough. But what always gets me past it is the memories from the first half, especially. Blitzball, Riku, Kamari trying to smile, Tidus's really weird laugh. Yeah, the ha 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 ha, that laugh. The shoe puff driver's ridiculous accent, you know, rides the shoe puff? And to come at a time where I was so ready to relax and enjoy a game without the fear of shutting my console off to go to bed, and wake up to hell at school the next day, the game really had all the time in the world to truly carve a piece into my mind for all eternity. And well, I suppose the hot spring scene in Ten Two also has a place for a different reason. Yuna, at least. I didn't know what the hell Riku was wearing in that scene. Like I said, Ten Riku only. 
Thank you so much for checking out this show. It has been a blast for me to go through this wave of nostalgia, listening to the music, remembering all the moments, all that jazz. This was a hell of a project for me to take on, considering the time constraints I have. The reason my podcasts generally are unedited and unscripted, and the videos aren't some crazy edited video with tons of footage, is not because I'm lazy, but because I don't have enough time to pull it off regularly. The video is obviously still the same here as any other show, but audio-wise, this has been a much different project. A full script, which I spent six hours writing out, being recorded and edited to be as perfect as possible, no flubbing of words, no struggling to think of information, just one fluent show. I still enjoy the realism of my other shows, but because it's literally just me talking. But this, this is a different beast. One that I wanted to do, to prove that I could do something like this. So I hope you enjoyed this show, and hopefully there will be a second episode. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video if you enjoyed it, subscribe to the channel, and leave a comment below about what you thought about the show. I'd really appreciate any sort of criticism. If you're listening to this on an audio platform, if you have the ability to rate the show, please do so. Otherwise, if you want to reach me, you can hit me up at Twitter at CSRadical, or email me at askcsradical at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in any other podcasts I do, there's the Radical Wrestling Podcast and the anime-themed Church of Weeb, which are uploaded as the same YouTube channel as the show. There's also the VCR Podcast, a show I do with a couple of friends, which is available on anchor.fm slash VCR Podcast or on my YouTube channel as well. This has been the first episode of the Radical Recall. I'm CS Radical, and thanks for stopping by. Mm-hmm.